The rest of you will take out your Bibles and turn once again this week to uh, the book of Psalms, number 116. And when you have found your place at Psalm 116, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word uh, of the living God. We're beginning in this week in verse 12. The psalmist writes, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would fulfill your promise to us, that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word, Father, that your spirit would uh, open our hearts to understand the truth that you have for us today. Lord, that your spirit would accomplish uh, the transformation that needs to take place in our hearts today. So we open ourselves up to you and to your spirit and to your word. Now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wish I had time to review for you now all the truths that we've been hearing and praying about and seeking to be transformed by in the last two weeks as we have been together here in Psalm 116. But I have to limit my review to this. God worked dramatically in the life of the man who wrote this psalm. He was at the point of physical death. He called out to the Lord. The Lord heard, and the Lord delivered him. He did not die. This man was so troubled in his life. His life was full of sorrows and trouble, the point that he was in tears. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard his cry, and he set him free. He delivered him from whatever trouble, whatever sorrow. He was experiencing. And as a result of what God did in his life, this man knew some things about the Lord. He knew that he had a Lord who listened to him, who inclined his ear to him, who who, who put his ear over right up against his mouth so that he could hear every whisper uttered by this man. He knew this about the Lord, that he had a Lord who was powerful enough to deliver, a Lord who was willing to deliver him because that's what he had experienced in his life. And so as a result of all the good things the Lord had done for him, this man simply and beautifully wrote this in verse 1. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. What else could you do for God who's been so gracious and merciful? And now this man wants to give back to the Lord, to render, to return to the Lord something for all the good things the Lord has done for him. And that's what we began to look at last week, these thank you gifts that this man wants to offer to the Lord. The first gift at which we looked was this, I will lift up the cup of salvation. This week, we turn to the second gift that this man offers to the Lord. What shall I give the Lord for all his goodness to me? 
he says, I will call on the name of the Lord. I will call on the name of the Lord. That may seem like an odd thank you gift to give to someone. I will say thank you, Lord, by asking you for more. It's, it's not what we do. If someone to give you a really nice gift, like a, a brand new car, you would not thank them by saying thank you. May I have another brand new car? You wouldn't come to them a third time and say, thank you, may I have yet another brand new car? We wouldn't do that. How is calling on the name of the Lord a way of thanking the Lord? Because even the most generous one among us here this morning, you know, we have a a, a limit to our generosity. And we are finally put off by the person who comes to us over and over and over again, always with their hand out. Or if the shoe is on the other foot, if you're the person who is in need, you hesitate to go back over and over and over again to the same person because you're afraid of what they might think of you. You're afraid they may think you are irresponsible, that they will be offended by your continually coming to them. And we think that way. And we feel that way because almost all of us value independence. We value ingenuity. We value self-sufficiency in ourselves and in others. Teaching jobs were really difficult to come by when I graduated uh, from college a few years ago. Teachers were on the substitute list for many years just waiting for a job opening. The only way I got my first teaching job so quickly was because I took a, a job at a junior high that had had a riot the year before, a riot that had been covered by the national media. And so no one wanted to teach at that school. I didn't want to teach at that school. But I had a wife and a baby and another baby on the way, so I applied for the job and I got it because I was the only applicant for that job. (laughs) And in case you don't know this, let me just tell you, the new teacher doesn't get the honors classes. The new teacher doesn't get the students who, when the bell rings, go to their seats and say, we're all in our places with bright, shiny faces. Please teach us all you have to know. No, that doesn't happen. Not for the new teacher. And so I ended up with some really mean kids in my class. Brass, knuckle, carrying, knife hidden in the black leather jacket kind of students. In one of my seventh grade classes, I had two 18-year-olds. That tells you something. (laughs) But I was determined that they were not going to get the best of me. I was going to have discipline in my class if it killed me, and it just about did. You know, talking tough every day, bluffing my way through every period, never smiling not allowing them to get away with anything. Well, shortly into the school year, I overheard the new principal, who was an old guy, tough guy, you know, former military, former football coach kind of guy. He said this, I like Bailey. He takes care of his own problems. I'm like, yay, you know, the tough guy principal. You know, he likes me. He's proud of me because I take care of my own problems. And so I set a new goal for myself. I was never going to call the principal's office for help. The other teachers at that riotous junior high, they might blow up the intercom calling for help from the office, but not me. I was going to take care of my own problems. Now, who do you think was the loser in that scenario? I was the loser. I went home. You could ask Kathy. Emotionally, mentally exhausted every single day from trying to keep up with 150 junior high students to keep ahead of them with no help. And the truth is, the office was there to help me. The principal was there to help the teacher. The principal was there to come and remove disruptive students from class so that you could get on with teaching. 
but because I wanted to please the principal and make him think that I was the perfect teacher, I never called on him. So his praise was crippling for someone like me, someone who cared and cares so much about what people think about me. And so I've had to fight this tendency, you know, my whole Christian life, to try to please God by not needing Him. And too often I have fallen for the lie of Satan, and and that's what it is, that God will be pleased with me if I do things on my own. That God will look around the host of heaven, that I'll look to His Son seated at His right hand, there interceding for me, and He'll say, I like Bailey. He takes care of his own problems. He never bothers me. He hasn't asked me for anything in months. Watch him go. I am so proud of him. Gold star. He's just the kind of person I like the most. See, God is not pleased when we take care of our own problems. Because that's the same thing as saying to God, I I don't know you, and he, he wants us to know him. And so when we call on the name of the Lord, it demonstrates that we do know him. We honor him when we call on him, because when we call on him, it says, I know you have the ability to help me, Lord. I know you have the desire to help me. I know you have the power to help me. We thank him when we call on his name because it reflects a proper view of ourselves and a proper view of God. We have need. God has supply. We seek independence and self-sufficiency. God seeks dependency and trust. You know, you and I, we want to make our own way in the world. But we don't have to. I'm not saying you won't make it on your own with no help. You might, but, but who would want to? You can strive, you can be independent. We all can. Set our own goals. But when we do that on our own, what do we forfeit? Because the God who designed you, and the God who designed me, Scripture says He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knew us. He knows us. He created us. And He designed our lives to be lived a certain way. And that's the way our lives work best, when we live them as God designed us to live them. And He didn't design us to live independently from Him. He didn't design us to be on our own, to live on our own. He designed us to be intimately linked to Him, continually calling on Him for all things. The psalmist seems to step out of his body for a moment in verse 7. Look there. And he looks over to his soul, and he says this to his soul. Soul, be at rest, for the Lord has been good to you. See, that's what we forfeit. We try to do things on our own and try so hard on our own to, to please God. We forfeit being at rest, being at peace. What we gain are the opposites. Labor and turmoil, work, stress. They become our companions that join and come around us to celebrate all the goals that we have achieved on our own and all the stuff that we have accumulated so much better to call on the name of the Lord. I, I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I call on your name. A continuously open hand. It's the perfect, perfect thank you gift to offer to the Lord for what he has already done for you because he wants to do more and more and more. Thank the Lord by calling on his name. 
Let's move on and see the next thank you gift that the psalmist gives to the Lord. It's in verse 14. Look there. The psalmist says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. You know, in the Old Testament, people made vows. They made promises to God. A vow could be a positive thing and include promises uh, for, for certain acts or promises to give God certain things in return for something that you seek from God. Jacob made a vow in Genesis 28. He said, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. That's kind of a vow. Lord, I promise to do this for you if you'll do this for me. Hannah, Samuel's mother, did the same thing. She said, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you for all the days of his life. A vow could be negative as well. The person, for instance, who made a Nazarite vow wanted to set themselves apart to God for some special service. And so that vow uh, included things that, that they would not do. Lord, I will not drink wine. Lord, I will not cut my hair. Lord, I will not touch unclean food. Lord, I will not, uh, uh, Lord, I will not touch a, a dead body. And so that's the negative aspect of a vow. But, but for all vows, this is what God's word says. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows, or you will be guilty of sin. However, it is not a sin to refrain from making a vow. But once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. So if you don't have to make a vow, if it's not sin not to make a vow, why would you make one? Well, you make a vow because you feel compelled to make a vow because you want to respond to God in some way. And so you make a promise to thank Him, to set yourself apart to Him, to demonstrate your trust in Him and your dependence on Him. You make some sort of a vow. We don't know what vows this man made to God. All we know is that he is eager to pay those vows. And not privately to himself, not just in his own home, not just before his family. Look again in verse 14. This psalmist wants to fulfill his vows in the presence of all his people. Look down in verse 18. I will, fulfill, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. We see once again this week that the longing of this psalmist's heart is for public proclamation of the goodness and the greatness and the deliverance of God. As we saw last week, This man wasn't satisfied just to take hold of the cup of salvation. He wanted to lift the cup of salvation high, to raise it for everyone to see. Because he was not ashamed that he needed salvation. He was not ashamed to admit that God was the only one who could save him. And so he lifted high the cup of salvation. Now he's not ashamed that he would have made a vow to God, a promise to God. And he's certainly not ashamed to fulfill that vow in the presence, in the sight of all of God's people. You know, your mortgage or your car payment is like a vow. When you voluntarily sign the papers to buy that car or to buy that house, you are vowing, you are promising, I will pay for this house, for this car. 
And so that becomes a debt to you until you have paid it off. And when you pay it off, you don't do it in secret. You don't want no one to notice it. You've got to have a receipt. Somebody's got to know, hey, I have paid off my vow. Well, every person in the congregation, in the house of the Lord, they become like living receipts for this man. Watch me. I want to pay my debt to the Lord. I want to give back to the Lord what I owe him. I want to fulfill my vows in your presence so you can all see it. And so in the end, everything we've been talking about for the last three weeks, it's about public worship, lifting up the cup, calling on the name of the Lord, fulfilling vows. You know, a lot of reasons can inspire pastors, church staff, other church members to attempt to get you to come to Sunday morning worship. You know, big crowds are impressive and they suggest success. More people means more money. The reasons could go on and on. But sometimes people feel like the means to an end of someone else's agenda. But never forget this. Never, never, never forget this. Worship is what you do for God. Worship is what you and what I do for God. Lifting up the cup of salvation with others. Calling on the name of the Lord with others. Fulfilling our vows in the presence of God's people. Worship is what you and I owe the Lord. And our worship truly is for an audience of one. Our worship is for the one and only true and living God. His theater is heaven. His seat is his royal throne. And from there he watches as you and I, his grateful people, take our places on the stage to perform for him. We take his word and we read it together because it's our script and it's worth reading over and over and over again. We take our places and we sing and we sing for the Lord's pleasure. We bow our heads and physically acknowledge before the Lord in humility our absolute dependence on him for all things and then we pray together. At the right cue, we pass around a little bag and we give money to the Lord and for the Lord as a way of saying thank you, Lord, for all that you have given to me. Our worship is about God and fulfilling our debt of praise and worship to him. Don't forfeit the opportunity. Don't forfeit it. And don't let less important activities prevent you from worshiping with your church family in the presence of one another whenever you have the opportunity. And when you come to worship with yourself and you bring others, the questions we ask are not, will I like it? Will I enjoy it? Will the friend I brought along with me be entertained by it? The most important question that you and I ask ourselves as we enter into the presence of the Lord for worship with his people is, what can I do? Where is my heart? How can I worship in a way that is most pleasing to the Lord as I bring him my offering of worship today, as I fulfill my vow of praise in the presence of his people? That's what worship is about. And I want us to conclude this morning by looking at the greatest inspiration, the greatest inspiration for worship. And it's in verse 15. Look there with me. 
Verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I struggled and struggled and struggled with this verse this week. I read the passage, all of it, all of Psalm 116, the last three weeks, over and over and over again. And this verse always seemed out of place. I couldn't figure out, how does this fit? The verses before this verse talk about lifting up the cup, calling on the name of the Lord, fulfilling the vows. The verses after this verse repeat the same thing. The psalmist talks about calling on the name of the Lord, fulfilling his vows in the presence of God's people. So sandwiched between those verses is verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? What, what does this have to do with anything that this psalmist has been saying? I mean, the man didn't die. He lived. That's the point of the whole psalm. Thank you, Lord, that you delivered me from death. And then I realized that verse 15 is the ultimate expression of faith. It's the greatest understanding of who the God that he publicly worships really is. I, I don't know of a higher place we can go than this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because here is the greatest miracle of all. And we on this side of the cross can see that in a way the psalmist never could. Because the, the, the thing dreaded most, death, the thing that the world calls cold, and black, and grim, and dread, has been made precious by God. Precious death. Whoever says that? Whoever says that? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, death comes to, to destroy. How disappointed death must be when it grabs on to a saint of God. Because in that moment, death is denied the darkness and the despair and the grief for which death salivates. Let me have it. That's what death wants. Because Jesus meets the saint. Jesus meets the believer in death and carries them away. And death is left empty-handed, utterly defeated. If death were the victor, Death would receive the prize, and it could stand up on the platform with the gold medal draped around its neck or the lifeless body in its arms. But death is defeated. Jesus snatches the life away from death. Death does not win, and so it walks away empty-handed with nothing, an utter failure and loser. Death thought it had the victory. It did. But it got a big surprise, because when death reached out to touch the believer... In that moment, life was produced. It was. Eternal life was produced. So maybe the death of saints is precious to the Lord and brings him joy because the Lord sees the accomplished work of his spirit, the faith that the spirit granted to that person, the love for Christ given it by the spirit, the grateful heart. Perhaps it's a joyful reminder again and again that sin is dealt with. That Christ paid everything. Sin could demand, so sin could no longer stand in the way. Sin could no longer block anyone who believes in Christ from entering into the presence of God. What Jesus did on the cross satisfied God's justice. So God could still be just. He could still hate sin. He could still say, I cannot dwell in the presence of sin. But he could still receive sinners into his presence because they are forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ. 
So for the believer, death is no longer a penalty. Sin has been paid for. You know Romans 6.23, don't you? I know you know it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Death is the wage. It's the price for sin. But if there is no sin charged to your account, then you don't owe anything. And you don't have to die. Because on the cross, Jesus took our sins and he paid the price that our sins demand. And so we owe nothing. For the believer, death is not a penalty or a punishment, but it's a release, a setting free. This is question 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asks this question. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? And here's the answer. Our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. Isn't that great? I love it. Death puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. Charles Spurgeon, that famous, famous prince of preachers from the 19th century, wrote this about death. He said, let us not malign the grave. It is no more a prison, but an inn, a halting place on the road to resurrection. It's great. He wrote this. The man is at one moment weak and cannot stir a finger. In an instant, he's clothed with power. Call ye not this again? The brow, it's aching. It shall wear a crown within the next few tickings of the clock. Is that not gain? The hand is palsied. At once it shall wave the palm branch. Is that a loss? The man is sick beyond the physician's power, but he shall be where the inhabitant is never sick. Is that a loss? Richard Baxter was a godly man, a famous Puritan preacher in his day, theologian, prolific writer. After Kathy and my wife read and was deeply moved by some of his writings, she insisted that we name our newly acquired dog, a boxer, Baxter. And so he did. He was Baxter the boxer. Forget that part. Spurgeon writes this about Richard Baxter. Wonderful man of God. When Baxter lay a-dying, his friends came to see him. Almost the last word Baxter said was an answer to the question, Dear Mr. Baxter, how are you? Almost well. Almost well, said he. And so it is. Death cures. It's the best medicine. For they who die not are not only almost well, but healed forever. And so when you and I can call on the name of the Lord and ask him to deliver us, and when we're okay either way, whether he delivers us or not, doesn't matter. Because if he doesn't deliver us, we know we're better off. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we realize that that's who God is, and what he has done for us, and the provision that he has made for us, then our worship will be an inspired privilege. Something we'll never want to miss because we get to worship a God like this. Is that not amazing? We'll want to say thank you to the Lord, to give back to him in our worship for all of his goodness to us. We'll want to lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord and fulfill our vows in the presence of all God's people because precious 
in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I have to say this this morning. If you are here and you're not a believer in Christ, this hope is not for you. Nor is the peace that, that it promises to your soul. And so what you need to do is to call on the name of the Lord right now. Figure out right now, where is it that you stand with the Lord? What about your sin? What, what, what are you doing with that? Because if you, if you haven't yet put your sin on Christ, if you haven't yet asked Him to, to take your sin, to carry it away from you, the guilt, the burden of it, you need to do that. Except by faith, and it is by faith, it's by faith. That's all there is to it, it's by faith. Except that he is the only one that can pay the price for your sin, and he has done it. If you don't do that right now, and if you never do it in the course of this life, you will never be able to call death precious. Never, never, never. It will never be anything to you but dark and dreadful, And your death will be your entrance into a place like you've never been before. Because it will be a place completely void, separated from the presence of God and all His goodness and all His grace. And no matter how bad we may think this world is, the presence of the Lord is with us. But that never has to be true for you. Not if you call on the name of the Lord now. I was reminded last week, when I attended the funeral of a son of a friend of mine who was buried three days before his 21st birthday last Friday. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us. And so we've got to to call on the name of the Lord. The Lord is good to you. By By giving you life, thank Him. Give back to Him. Take hold of that cup of salvation that He offers to you. Lift it high. Call on the name of the Lord. Fulfill your vows in the presence of His people. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of His saints. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before You. And we bow to acknowledge, Lord, our complete dependence on You for all things. We vow to thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for the life that you've given us. Father, we vow to thank you for the kind of God that you are. And we're thankful that we can give back to you just this small thing, our our worship, our praise, our gratitude to you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Father, I pray for those who may be here this morning who have never in faith turned to you, Lord Jesus, as the only one who can deal with their sin. People who are here this morning who are burdened by their sin, uh, guilty for their sin, oppressed by their sin, enchained by their sin. Spirit of God, I pray that you would open their eyes now to see that there is hope and there is healing, but it's only in turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can deal with that sin problem. And once that sin problem is dealt with, Lord, we have the promise of eternal life spent in your presence. Not because we work so hard, not because we are so independent, not because we we can do it on our own, 
simply because we have placed our faith in you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you are with us through this life, and at the moment of our death, you usher us into your presence where we will dwell forever and ever. So we thank you now, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.